examination of why we do what we do as a church in light of Scripture. And what are the things that we've been doing just because we've been doing them? And what are the things that God's Word would have us do differently? Uh, This message today fits into that series, even though it follows closely on the theme that we've been looking at in our Proverbs series for the last couple of sessions, which is what we're supposed to do with money that God gives us. Now, if you're new to this body, I want to point out we very rarely talk about giving in this church. If you hear the message today and the one next week, you might think that we have a really strong focus on talking a lot about giving money. Uh, we don't. It rarely comes up. We let God worry about it. Uh, we preach it when it's in the text that we're dealing with. But in, as part of this series... We, as the elders, believe that this was a topic that needs to be addressed. Why we as a body have the habits with regard to giving that we have. Why we as individuals have the approach toward giving that we have. And is it indeed biblical? Uh, So, with that, I'm going to read. Actually, before I read, uh, let me pray. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, I might be wrong... Uh, But I think this is an aspect of humble submission to you that many of us simply fail to see as you see it. You declare that there is a very great blessing to your children when we faithfully acknowledge by what we do with our money and our possessions uh, that our hearts are truly submitted to you as the owner of all things. Lord, you're the one from whom every good thing and every perfect gift comes. And all of those things that you put in our hands continue to belong to you every second of every day. Teach us what that means. Teach us how that works out in practice so that that we might honor you fully and we might know the fullness of joy and blessedness that you intend for your children. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'll get to the passage here in 1 Chronicles 29 in just a moment, but I'll, I'll start with this. When I was in, uh, when I was in the IT business, uh, which is where I came from before I started in this role, I was at a company called VentureNet for 16 years. And that company kindly provided a vehicle for my use uh, to get to and from clients and prospective clients. A couple of years before I left VentureNet, to start preaching and teaching full-time, they leased several brand-new Honda Fits. It's a little, cool little car. And they assigned one of them to me. Now, for various reasons, I have never owned a brand-new car. Probably never will. So that was the first and only new off-the-showroom-floor car that I have ever driven. And I loved it. The company allowed employees to drive car, those cars for business use and for personal use in keeping with IRS-approved guidelines. So that was the car that I drove most of the time for a couple of years. And it was a great little car. It was quick enough to get out of its own way. It got ridiculously good gas mileage. And you could park it anywhere that you could find half a space, right? <clears throat> that car had company-specific signage on it. And so I knew that when I drove that car around, people's image of the company I worked for was dependent on 
how I kept that car looking. So I washed that car more than I've ever washed any car in my life. I really enjoyed driving it, but I always knew that it wasn't my car. When the end of my time at VentureNet approached, I knew that my boss was going to be reassigning that car to someone else and probably before I was gone. And so I came in each day and I wasn't sure if I was going to get to hand the keys over to somebody else or drive it back home. And that was perfectly fine with me because it wasn't my car. It was time for me to let go of the use of it and that was no big surprise. Now, during the time that I had use of that, that cool little car, there were things about my experience with it that were very different than the way it works with my own cars. I never considered taking it on a long vacation trip because that violated IRS guidelines. And it wasn't my car. The vehicle policy use was what guided my use of the car. See, I got to use it, but I got to use it on somebody else's terms. I didn't make plans for one day turning that car over to my wife or to one of my kids and getting a different one because it wasn't my car. When one of the other guys needed to use it because theirs was in the shop and they had an important client visit to make and they had to take some equipment to that customer, I handed the keys over without complaint because it wasn't my car. I didn't cling to it as if it was mine because it wasn't. In fact, there wasn't a single moment on any day of the two years that I drove that car that it was ever mine. Now I drive a different car. Now I have the title to it. Uh, let's see. It's a clear blue title. No loans, no liens. Okay, it's, it's my title. But you know what? It's not my car. God intends for me to understand and for you to understand that the money in our bank accounts is not ours, even while it's still in our grasp. The house that I live in won't be mine even on the day that the mortgage is paid off if I live that long. Every bit of it belongs to Him. And He wants me to have the very same mindset about everything that He entrusts into my hands that I had about that Honda Fit. That includes the clothes in my closet, the food in my pantry, the house in which I and my family sleep, the funds in my IRA. Whatever it is and however long He leaves it in my hands and lets me receive benefit from it, it's His, not mine. While it's in my hands, I need to handle it thoughtfully in a way that enhances His value in the eyes of other men. I need to use it on His terms, not mine. And I need to hold on to it very loosely, knowing that He may at any time decide that He has better use for it in somebody else's hands. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at what God's Word says about giving. And what we'll see is that everything He says about that sacred assignment hinges on who owns what. This week we're going to look at 
the principles related to giving in the Old Testament, and next week we'll look at principles related to giving in the New Testament. I took one message and stretched it to two, which I've done before, and I reserve the right to do that because Bob did it a lot. (laughs) This morning, I want to begin by considering the basis, the foundation of all that the Bible has to say about giving. And we will get to the the central passage from 1 Chronicles 29 in, in a minute. But first, I want to look at another passage, talk about another passage, and that's Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 presents some very specific instructions, and turn to it if you've got got your Bible in front of you, electronic or otherwise. Leviticus 25. It contains very specific instructions that God gave to those in Israel whom he had blessed with material prosperity. If you were one of the more well-to-do Israelites in ancient Israel, it would have been quite common for other not-so-well-to-do Israelites to sell a family member into slavery to you because they had a debt to you that they could not pay. And that was the way you addressed that debt. They would work in your fields and in your household because of a family debt. Now, if you were one of those prosperous Israelites, God had some very important things to say to you in this chapter of the Bible. Every seventh year in what was known as the the sabbatical year, you were required by God to let those Israelite slaves go, to turn them loose. You were to permanently free them from their debt to you and let them return to their own families and their own lands, regardless of the impact on you and on your business ventures (laughs) because you lost the use of their labor to which you had become accustomed. And Deuteronomy chapter 15 expands on this same set of instructions, explaining that not only were you to let that Israelite slave go, you were to furnish him liberally from your own flocks, from your own threshing floor, and from your own wine vat. You were to give to him, quote, as the Lord your God has blessed you. Deuteronomy fifteen fourteen. Now, not coincidentally, that was the same year in which you were to forgive every other debt owed to you by any other Israelite. And then to ratchet it up some, in the 50th year, which was known as the Jubilee year, God also required you to return any land that you had acquired because of a debt that another Israelite owed to you. The land was to revert in that 50th year back to the family to which God had originally given it. And again, that was without regard to whatever impact that would have on your finances or your business ventures. It was just something that had to happen. Now, in that same chapter, Leviticus 25, God reveals the basis for these two critical instructions, the return of the land and the release of slaves. And the basis for the same is both, or for both of these is the same. Let me uh, get to that slide. Leviticus 25, verse 23, and verse 55. And verse, uh, verse 23, excuse me, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. And here's why. For the land is mine, says the Lord. For you were but aliens and sojourners with me. And then in verse 55, here's the reason that slaves were not to be held permanently. 
For the sons of Israel are my servants, not yours. They're my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. That's the ultimate reason right there. The character of God. The name of God. See, the land of Israel belonged to God. Not some of it, all of it. If you were that wealthy Israelite, that included the land that God allowed you to continue to live on after you gave back what you had acquired from others. And the people of Israel belonged to God. All of them. Not just the Israelite slaves you had to release every seven years, but every Israelite, including you. God's ownership of His people and of everything He puts into His people's hands is absolute. It was then and it is now. There were no exceptions and there are no exceptions. There's nothing that we touch and there is no part of life that we get to cling to as our own. Even what God graciously leaves in your hands for a time isn't yours. It's His. And it is that reality that teaches us to hold on very loosely to money and stuff. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Chronicles 29 that captures the the foundation of the believer's attitude in giving. The believer's heart toward God and laying back at His feet all that He gives to us. This passage is a declaration that King David made before God and before all of Israel in the day that they had finished gathering all of the material wealth that would go into the construction of the temple, the temple that Solomon was going to build. That included a vast wealth of gold and silver and precious gems and the finest woods and fabrics and all other kinds of materials that were required for that first amazing temple in Jerusalem. And it was wealth that each family in Israel had contributed voluntarily and generously. First Chronicles 29.9 says, Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. For they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. David had contributed quite a lot to that cause as well, personally. Verses 10 to 16 says this. And I want, as we read this, I want you to look at how strongly and how purely the focus is on who God is and what God has done. So David blessed the Lord, verse 10, in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is the power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, because those things are true about God, now, therefore, God, we thank you, And we praise your glorious name. But who am I? That's who you are, Lord. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you. And from your hand we have given you. 
For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. That's what God said in Leviticus 25. You're aliens and sojourners with me. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. In other words, there's no hope in this stuff. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and it's all yours. It's from your hand and it all belongs to you. Now David is saying to God, what we have given back to you, it was in our hands for a time. But it's from your hand, and you put it in our hands for a purpose. (laughs) It's all yours, and it always was. Guys, that is the principle, that is the foundation behind all giving. And if we lose sight of that principle, we give for the wrong reasons, we give the wrong amounts, and we get very confused about what's actually happening. God's ownership of every life and of everything that He has created is the reality that guides our attitudes and our actions with regard to money and relationships and time and everything He puts in our hands in this life. And when we see His absolute ownership in the light of His amazing grace toward us, we don't resist His ownership. We don't resent His ownership. We rejoice in His ownership. There's nothing better that can be said about us and about the stuff that we have possession of than to say that it belongs to God. All of it. All of us. Immediately after David said the words that we just read, he added these. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, Preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. That's my prayer for all of us today. Lord, preserve forever in the intentions of the heart of your people this understanding, this attitude toward you. Direct our hearts toward you. David calls out here to the name of the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God who in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89 promised to him, David, to create from him a line of kings that would result in a king whose reign would be forever, who would reign in perfect righteousness and justice, who would reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom from then on and forevermore. Isaiah chapter 9. David was a man humbled before God by the grace that God had shown to him and by the grace that God had revealed to the the fathers of Israel. And David was a grateful man. And what he was presenting from the hands of his people and from his own hands to God, he was praising God for because he knew it all belonged to him. There is a joyful submission that comes when we really get the concept of God's ownership in the light of God's grace. I want to look at a couple of aspects of giving, a couple of examples of giving 
that were actually commanded of Israel in the Old Testament. And look at them in order to discern from them the principles that still abide for us under the New Covenant. And the first one I want to look at is, is the offering called the first fruits. Deuteronomy 26 gives us a pretty good synopsis of how this works. It says, Then it shall be when you enter the land, and by the way, when this was written, Israel was on the east side of the Jordan, just about ready to cross into the land of promise after 40 years of being in the wilderness. God says, Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. Look at how many times in this passage it talks about where this comes from. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I love this liturgy, I declare this day to Yahweh my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to give, swore to our fathers to give to us. This is a covenant keeping God. And then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and he shall set it down before the altar of the Lord your God and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God. (laughs) No question about who you're talking to here. My father was a wandering Aramean and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly. And they afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And He has brought us to this place and He has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Now, behold, I have brought the first fruit of the produce of the ground which you, Lord, have given to me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien, the foreigner who is among you, shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Isn't that marvelous? Under the law of Moses, every Israelite was instructed to bring the first portion of each harvest the place in which God dwelled in the midst of His people, and to eat it, by the way, in the presence of God, together with His family and with the Levites and foreigners who were part of His community. This was one of a few different national potlucks that Israel enjoyed, sit-down dinners in the presence of God, rejoicing in His provision. They got to rejoice in all the good which the Lord their God had given to them and each to his own household. That happened, by the way, three times a year at the pilgrimage festivals, which corresponded with the three major harvest cycles in Israel's agricultural calendar. What was the point? What was the lesson to Israel of dedicating the first of each person's crops to the Lord? 
In a nutshell, the principle is it's first fruits, not leftovers. This is not something that a child of God did grudgingly or avoided doing at all. The spirit or heart of the giver in presenting these offerings to God becomes all the more vivid if we put the first fruits in the context of all the other firsts that God required of Israel. But I want to just hit on a couple of points. The first fruits demonstrate these principles that abide, and you'll find all of them in the New Testament. We return to God the first of what He has graciously given to us, not the leftovers. We return it to God gratefully from hearts that acknowledge His grace toward us. We return it to God deliberately, not haphazardly, not thoughtlessly, but intentionally. And we return it to God regularly. We're going to talk about those points as we proceed. But first I want to put this in the context of the other firsts, because there were a bunch of firsts. (laughs) There were the first fruits, Deuteronomy 26 and several other passages talk about those. There was also the firstborn, Exodus 13, right after the Passover. Remember God said to Israel, you shall take the firstborn, both of man and beast, the firstborn males, and you'll dedicate them to me. Now the the firstborn males among Israel were redeemed by a, a method that God provided so that they could stay in their families. But they belonged to God. And the firstborn of every animal in your herd, you would, they would pass under a rod and every tenth one, I mean, uh, every firstborn, excuse me, that's the tenth, I'll get to that in a minute. The firstborn of every, of every animal was dedicated to the Lord. So we got the first fruits, we got the firstborn, and then we got the blood and the fat. If you look in Leviticus 17 and in Leviticus 7 and in some other passages, you'll find that when you brought an animal to sacrifice to God. You brought it to the tabernacle and before you handed it over to the, the priest, either you or the priest, depending on the particular ceremony, would would cut the throat of that animal and the blood would be poured out. And Leviticus 17 says that that blood is the life of the animal. And that life belongs to God and that's why that blood belongs to God. You don't get to keep it. It belongs to Him. In Ezekiel 44.7, it says the same thing. Leviticus 17.11-14, the blood is the life. And it belongs to God. Also, the fat that lined the innermost parts of that sacrificial animal belonged to God. And here's something we don't get in our Western culture. The word fat is the same Hebrew word that's translated best. Now to us, the fat is the discard. But to God, the fat was His. It was the sacred part. It was the best. And there are passages in which that very word that means fat is translated speaking of the best part, even of the grain. And even of many other things in Israel. And the fat was dedicated only to God. Leviticus 7, verses 25 to 26, tells us that the best part which is the fat, and the blood, which is the life, belong to God. And if any Israelite consumes those two things, 
he is cut off from his people. And if you look at how that word is used, that means he gets executed, taken outside the camp and stoned to death. Now, you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are redeemed through faith in him, we, we are no longer under the law of Moses. But these principles abide in every age and they are indispensable if we're going to see our possessions and our selves as God sees. As his children, we have been redeemed out of death into life by his marvelous grace in Jesus Christ and we are his. We have been bought with the most precious price of all, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. We've been bought with the price of his blood. Everything we have is His, and everything we are is His. When we look at what He has put in our hands to use for His glory, which is everything that He's put in our hands, and when we determine joyfully to take our hands off of a portion of it and give it to Him, these same timeless principles guide our hearts and our hands. The one who knows what he has received from God and who understands God's ownership of all things, would never consider giving to God the leftovers. God gets the first, He gets the best, and He gets the life. And that includes our life. There are at least a few subordinate principles that come through loud and clear in these passages that talk about this whole issue of the first and the best belonging to God. Uh, Leviticus 23.14 instructed Israel, gave an interesting instruction. I'm going to turn this off for a minute just to avoid distraction. That passage says that when you brought the first fruits, until you brought in that offering to the Lord your God, you were to eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth from that harvest. An Israelite didn't get to munch on the wheat he was carrying to Jerusalem the way we munch on french fries on our way home from McDonald's. He could not eat any of the new harvest until he had presented the first portion of that harvest to God. And that required a trip to Jerusalem at the festival, at the time of the festival. What's the first thing that you do after you get paid? What's the first check you write? Isn't that question worth asking in light of these instructions? We return to God the first and the best, not the leftovers. And we return it to God gratefully. Over and over in the passage we saw in Deuteronomy 26 about the ceremony and the liturgy surrounding the first fruits, the offerer declares the goodness of God toward him. It's a celebration of God's bountiful grace, not some kind of dreaded chore. We return our gifts to God deliberately. For an Israelite, the first fruits offering could hardly be called spontaneous or impulsive. It happened at each harvest cycle. He didn't get to eat any of it until he had taken God's portion to the place in which God dwelled in the midst of his people with the Levites and the foreigners who dwelled in his lands. It was no small undertaking. Do you give thoughtfully, prayerfully, intentionally, or do you give impulsively or not at all? 
we return our gifts to God regularly. Again, the timing of the first fruits offerings was as predictable as the seasons. As an Israelite, when you began bringing in the first part of each harvest, you set aside that first portion to bring to God and you didn't get to eat any of the rest until you had. It wasn't something that you did when you felt up for the trip. Do you give regularly or do you give when you feel like it? In his book, I've been touting this several times lately, Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which I highly recommend. He talks at one point about how his church used to have an annual retreat that was attended by half of the adults in the church and about two-thirds of the regular givers, and it went on for the whole weekend. So they didn't have the people who went on the retreat didn't, weren't there for the service. The service was pretty small on Sunday at the church. They didn't take up an offering at the retreat because they figured that those who were diligent about giving, most of whom were at the retreat, would make it up sometime later. But it didn't take long for the leadership at his church to realize that for the most part, the giving that was missed on the retreat weekend was never seen. We have seen the exact same phenomenon here at CBC on our ice days, and we've had a couple of those in the last couple of years. When we've had to shut down services on Sunday because of safety concerns, because mostly because the parking lot was iced up and we didn't want people slipping and sliding and breaking their necks. That's all I'll say about that. Guys, we who are the redeemed of God through faith in Jesus Christ are not under the law of Moses. And we are not required to keep the commandments related to the first fruits offerings as Israel was required. But the spirit of those commandments, the principle that has to do with who God is and what He has done, the principle that has to do with the priority to us of our relationship with Him and the genuineness of our gratitude toward Him, that principle abides. And we need to be seriously asking ourselves if we actually care about this thing, these things or if we're just giving lip service to them. I'm afraid that much of what actually plays out in the life of the evangelical church in America, and in all honesty, even in this church, looks to me like it does not line up with these principles. And I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. They say that the teacher gets the most out of the lesson. The teacher also gets the biggest beating. And I've been brought to tears in these weeks that we've been looking at this issue of what we do with this, the money and stuff that God puts in our hands because my priorities have not been His. We talked about the principle of the first fruits. Let's talk about the principle of the tithe. This is another, another big issue in the Old Testament that a lot of people talk about in New Testament context. Under the law of Moses, every Israelite was required to participate in the tithes. The word translated tithe literally means tenth. So the tithe consisted of dedicating one-tenth of your harvest or of some other component of your possessions to the Lord. And that's where we, I was talking about the t- tenth of the flocks. As the flocks would pass through a gate, you would take every tenth one and strike it with the rod, and that one would be dedicated to the Lord. And the tenth portion of your crops... By the way, Deuteronomy 26, after it talks about the first fruits, it talks about one aspect of the tithes, but there are several things that we're going to look at here. I find it very interesting, guys, that there is so much angst 
among Bible-believing Christians about whether or not the tithe still applies under the New Covenant. The word tithe, again, means tenth. It means ten percent. And that's what the word means when it's used in the Hebrew Old Testament, and that's what the word means when it's used in the Greek New Testament. It means tenth. I've heard many sermons and seen many Christian authors assert that the starting point, the baseline for Christian giving is 10% because the tithe from the Old Testament is still in effect under the New Covenant and the standard argument for that generally revolves around Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 when He blasted them for tithing mint and dill and cumin, which are little tiny herbs. He was making a very sarcastic point while they neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus then immediately said to those same men, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So the argument is Jesus didn't tell the Pharisees to stop tithing. And that's right, He didn't. In fact, He told them they should tithe. But that while tithing, they should not neglect the requirements of the law that most powerfully manifest the character of God. But the problem I have with that argument is that Jesus Himself practiced not only the tithe, He observed the holy days and the sacrifices and the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses, along with every other requirement of the law. And you know what? Jesus is the only man who ever did it perfectly. He's the one perfect law keeper in the whole history of the world. Of course He kept the the law's requirement for the tithe. But the same preachers and authors who insist that Christians are still bound to give 10% as a baseline in observance of the tithe because Jesus did and because He told the Jewish leaders to keep the tithe, those same preachers and writers are not telling Christians that they need to observe Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Passover and the Feast of Booths. They're not telling Christians to drop bacon from their menus. Oh, the horror! But here's where it gets even more interesting. In the Old Testament, there are three tithes, not one. Numbers 18 talks about the tithe for the provision of the Levites. See, the Levites didn't have an inheritance in the land. They were spread all over the place. And as a compensation and a, 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 con, a, a consolation, if you will, for their special role in Israel, there was a Levitical tithe. Every Israelite gave 10% to support the Levites. And that was an annual tithe. Then there was a festival tithe. Like the first fruits offering, there was a tithe that became a part of the national potluck during the festival days, the festival periods. Three times each year, you would take the first fruits of the harvest and you would take another tenth of each harvest and of your flocks and you would bring them to the place in which God dwelled in your midst and you would, that part, that that tithe, you would get to enjoy it in the presence of God. And then there was another tithe that happened once every three years. That's in Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 to 15, and Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. That tithe never never left your town. It wasn't when you took the central sanctuary. Every three years, you would take 10%, set aside 10%, and that would be made available to all the poor, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, the Levites, the sojourners, 
that lived in your lands, in your town. Not the same thing as the other tithes. Now, if you do the math, the baseline of giving that was required of Israelites under the commandments related to the tithes wasn't 10%. It was almost a fourth of their income. It was 23.33% of every Israelite's harvest. Now, I've never once heard a Christian preacher tell his congregation that because the tithe abides in the New Testament, every believer is required to give a fourth of his income to God as a starting point before any free will stuff, before any voluntary giving. And you know what? If that's what God did require in the New Covenant, that'd be fine. We, we would need to submit to it. And we need to do so joyfully because He's given us every reason it's not like we have like we, we have some cause to think that that's onerous. He's given us every reason. But guys, we need to get this straight. The tithes didn't even cover the whole obligation of an Israelite under the law of Moses when it came to giving money and stuff back to God. It didn't include the first fruits offering, which were required. There were also three categories of sacrificial offerings: sin and guilt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Peace offerings, those were voluntary. And all of those consumed grain and wine and animals from every Israelite's crops and herds. The only reference to tithes in the New Testament occur in Jesus' indictments against the Pharisees, Matthew 23, Luke 11, Luke 18. And in one passage in Hebrews about the tithe that Abraham gave to the unique priest Melchizedek, an event that was first recorded in Genesis 14, the priest in whose line Jesus' priesthood fits. By the way, the guy's name was Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, which is king of peace. I think that was a pre-incarnate Christ. You can make of that what you want, but I think that's who showed up and talked to Abraham that day, and that's who he gave the 10% to. If there's any case to be made for a tithe under the new covenant, it's that one. The tithe to the priestly line of Jesus Christ. But neither that passage nor any other passage in the New Testament ever commands believers to give a tenth of their income or a fourth of their income or any specific percentage of their income. If the tithe is required of Christians, you'd expect that passages that focus like a laser beam on the believer's privilege of giving. Passages like 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, passages that describe how giving was done, like Acts chapter 4, would have something to say about the tithe. You might even expect that Acts 15, in which the elders of the church lined out the essentials for the Gentile believers that they needed to bear in mind, some of which came over from the law, like, not eating the blood, that you'd find it there, but it's not there. Instead, these passages consistently instruct us as followers of Jesus Christ to give as we have determined in our hearts to give and to give in keeping with our ability and to give gratefully. And we're going to look at all that in detail next week when we look at the New Testament. Now, you may think I've spent way too much time on this, but I think this is super, super important. 
Anytime someone throws out a percentage of income and tells you that's the baseline for how much you were required to give as a Christian, I firmly believe they are going back to the letter of the law, not to the Spirit, even if they don't intend to, even if they don't generally take such an approach. Brothers and sisters, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has has set you free from the law of sin and of death. I do not believe that we who have died to the law in order to be bound to Jesus Christ, Romans 7, 4, are required to keep the commandments related to the tithes any more than I believe we are to abstain from eating animals with cloven hooves. But we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. More precisely, we must never set aside the spirit of the law because we have been freed from the letter the law. The law of Moses in every detail is for the true people of God, principle by example. Did you know the word Torah, the word that's translated law, doesn't mean law? It means instruction. Every commandment, every statute, every ordinance of the law is intended to tell us something valuable about the character of God and about how we as covenant children of God work out His character in our relationship with Him and in our relationships with each other. That's why David got to delight in the law of Moses. That's why I delight in the law of Moses and studying it. Because it tells me about the character of my God and how His character plays out in real life. We must not miss the principle of the tithe. What is that principle that we must continue to observe that is demonstrated in these very specific commandments that we are not accountable to observe? Well, as I see it, the big picture principle is that giving is a commitment, not an afterthought. And I'll break that down a little bit. Whether we resolve to give 1% or 5% or 10% or 90%, whether we resolve to give from net income or gross income, whether we resolve to carve out a portion of our total commitment to support specific missionaries or put all of it into the local church's general fund, whatever the specifics of our commitment with regard to giving, it's supposed to be a commitment. Giving is intended by God to be a spiritual discipline like prayer and Bible study and sharing the gospel and putting your gifts to use in the local body and every other kind of obedience. It's not supposed to be an afterthought any more than any of those other spiritual disciplines are. If you just consider the real estate in Scripture that's devoted to the issue of giving, you can't come to any other conclusion, guys. It's to be done intentionally, not haphazardly, without forethought or prayer. And as part of that intentionality, it is to be done regularly as opposed to sporadically or never. And the whole nature of the tithe, even the meaning of the word tithe, demonstrates that the kind of giving to which God calls every one of His children involves a meaningful part of what He has given to us. Giving back to God is not supposed to cost us so little that we don't notice it. In 2 Samuel 24, David sought to buy a field from a guy named Arana as the site upon which he would set an altar to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Arana 
probably to gain favor with the king, said, I'm going to give you that field. And David said, No, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Is that the attitude that we have in giving? Randy Alcorn points out that much of what Christians call giving in this age is more like strategic discarding. It's selective disposal. We use clothes and furniture and toys and computers and game consoles until they're obsolete or no longer useful to us and they're taking up space in our closets and our garages. And then we give them away and we make sure we get the little receipt that gives us the tax write-off. Now, surely that's a more useful thing to do than letting them occupy a landfill somewhere, right? But what is the motive for our acts of charity? Is it to hand back to God the first and the best and the life of what He has given to us? Or is it to ensure we get a tax break for letting go of something that no longer has any value to us? There's a very big difference between those two approaches. Alcorn points out the very disturbing statistic that four out of ten church attenders give nothing, and another two or three out of every ten give next to nothing. I mean six or seven out of every ten people in the evangelical church, and he's talking about the evangelical Bible-preaching church in America, give nothing or almost nothing. Does anyone here really believe that we who have been freed from obligation to the law of Moses are thus free to give no meaningful priority to diligently returning back to God a portion of what he has put in our hands? Does the failure to give even much thought to doing so sound like a reasonable response from people who have been bought out of the slave market of sin and redeemed from the curse of eternal death and have been made joint heirs with Jesus Christ for all eternity? Does it sound like the response of people who believe the same things about God that David declared to be true in that amazing declaration in First Chronicles 29? Guys, this is about the heart. And if our hearts are not grateful enough to God to even consider giving Him a meaningful portion of what He has put in our hands when it all belongs to Him in the first place, there's something wrong it's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed, it's supposed, Paul talks, and we'll talk about this next week, Paul talks about the, the benefit that accrues to our account because we turn loose of what God has put in our hands. It's not, it's not supposed to be a beat down. It's supposed to be a celebration of who he is and what he's done. And it can be. It can be. I want to close by reading words in Revelation chapter 5. And, uh, you might want to turn to it. Revelation five eleven through 14. One of the things that struck me as I was looking at this is that these words sound a whole lot like David's words that were written like a thousand years before this. <laughs> Revelation five eleven through 14. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy 
is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That day is coming. Loving Father, we thank you that you've said a whole lot about this. You haven't left us to guess. And yet at the same time, Lord, you've left us with a bit of attention because you don't tell us a percentage. You don't give us a checklist. And we like checklists, Lord. (laughs) We like to be able to to know the boundaries of what's expected. But we, we recognize that in Jesus Christ, the standard of the law is not only fulfilled, it is surpassed by an infinite measure, the standard of the letter, because it is overwhelmed by the standard that exists in the spirit of the law, which is the character of our God. And that's, that is what we as your children are called to, Lord, that spirit. It's a much higher standard. That doesn't mean it's a bigger percentage of income. It means it's about the heart. And we confess that to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would stir us up so that we would cling very, very loosely to the money and stuff that you put in our hands, recognizing, Lord, that you give it to us to use to invest in eternity. Teach us, Father, that we cannot serve both God and mammon. Teach us, Father, to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness and to know that anything that we need is already given to us. Teach us, Lord, that giving is not a quid pro quo where we come to You and we say, Lord, If I get enough benefit today, I'll give some to you because we have been given more benefit than we can even conceive in Jesus Christ. You have showered your blessings upon us. And Ephesians 2 says you're going to spend the rest of eternity pouring out upon us the surpassing riches of your kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. What in the world have we got to cling to here? Nothing. Father, burn this into our hearts so that we will know the joy of giving it all to you because it's yours anyway. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.